I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. is Timothy J. Smith. Timothy is a world traveler and a writer of novels, screenplays, and stage plays. He's won numerous awards for his writing, and his latest book is Fire on the Island, about a gay FBI agent investigating a series of fires on a small Greek island at a time of economic crisis and a constant influx of refugees seeking a better life. Now, I looked through your website, and your writing seems to feature very empathetic stories of people dealing with their own inner issues and crises within the context or the broader context of the issues and crises affecting the communities around them. 
What are you hoping to accomplish in your writing in general, and what inspires you? I want to tell stories that illuminate bigger issues or bigger events, but told through the perspective of intimate stories of, of families or individuals who are affected by those bigger issues. I, I can give a very quick example of the first novel I wrote. Um, it's called A Vision of Angels, and it uh, it's set against the backdrop of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I had just come off of a project of two and a half years of the first U.S. government's significant project to help Palestinians following the Oslo Peace Accords. And I felt after those two and a half years, I had an interesting story to tell, and I wanted to tell it from the multiple perspectives, and I actually quit working to become full-time writer at that time. It's an interesting journey for me personally because, though I'm not Jewish, I was really raised a Zionist. I grew up as a Zionist, and it ended my career working for Palestinians. So I felt that was an interesting arc in terms of my own story, and I felt I had something to say about that situation. But in general, I'm looking to, to talk about issues that are things of social concern or social justice, social equity, that kind of things. I've, I've written about human trafficking. In the Greek book, I wanted to tell the story of a Greek village that I know very well that actually tried to cope with a couple of very big crises going on, the financial collapse of the country as well as this flood of refugees coming in. And I know Greece very well. My first job after college was in Greece for a couple of years. It was a long time ago. I've spent about seven years of my life total in Greece, and this was really my homage to Greece because it's given me so much of my life. It's enriched it immensely. So I felt I wanted to get back to it, and that's what Fire on the Island is all about for me. So over here, we hear about refugees crammed into overcrowded boats and rafts, often capsizing in the Aegean and Mediterranean seas, often resulting in, in lots of people drowning. As so many people are literally risking everything, including their lives, just to get to Europe and in the hopes of, of a better life, where are they coming from? What are they fleeing? And why do they go to Greece, which is one of the poorest of the European nations? Well, what they're fleeing is wars. They're coming from different countries. My novel is set on the village of Lesbos, which is just uh, six kilometers or four miles off the coast of Turkey. It's one of the three or four closest islands to Turkey. And the refugees are coming from Syria, Afghanistan, Iran. Uh, in, in a lot of cases, they actually walked to Turkey. They walked to Istanbul and get to the coast and get on a raft. Um, and when you see pictures of what they're coming from, you realize there's nothing for them to stay for. The whole cities have been completely demolished. A lot of them were coming from Aleppo, which was the rebels' sort of city for a long time. And Aleppo is such a disaster that there's no place for them to live. Schools are being bombed. So they left because they had nothing waiting for them at home except probably a bomb to kill them. Uh, they come to Greece because it's the closest access to Europe. And once you're in Europe, in theory, you're able to go anywhere. Now there have been some barriers put up, but... None of these people that I met, none of the refugees, not a single one wanted to stay in Greece. They knew there weren't really opportunities for them in Greece. They mostly wanted to go to Northern Europe. They really looked at Sweden or Germany or other Northern countries that had strong economies and that they might be able to get work in. But there were a lot of refugees. I'll just give some numbers. In the year of 
2015 to into late 2016, a 12-month period, let's say, 500,000 refugees landed next to the village I go to every year on Lesbos. And the village only has 1,500 people. So it was a lot of people coming on rafts. <laughs> now, one of the things that occurs in this novel, Fire on the Island, is that as these refugees show up, there's this um, row of restaurants by the docks, and they are continually feeding all the refugees that come through for free. And this is at a time when they're experiencing their own financial crises. Is that a common thing? I mean, I found that to be remarkable. I mean, I've, I actually experienced that in my travels in southern Spain, that the poorest people are, are also the most generous. So I would love for you to talk about that aspect of it, since you're so familiar with that island and the people there. Well, I, I will say that the arrival of the refugees created a really huge conflict in the village between those who wanted to help and those who didn't want to help and who felt that the refugees were driving away tourism and creating all sorts of problems. But just by happenstance, by complete coincidence, um, the village that my partner and I go to, that I have been going to every year for 15 years, was really ground zero. The island was and the village was because it was the closest point between the island and where they launched in Turkey. And also, just by happenstance, our best friend in the village, a woman who owns one of the restaurants who's featured in the book, organized the first efforts to really try to help refugees. It was basically handing out sandwiches and, you know, sesame bars, bottles of water, fruit, that sort of stuff. It became pretty overwhelming fairly quickly for her small effort and anybody trying to help. And at that point, they didn't back off trying to help. They just couldn't accommodate the demand or the need. But people like me stepped in and began to raise money to uh, really help with food and other product that they needed. These refugees would arrive and, and they would have to walk the equivalent of uh, 40 miles to the main village on the island to register before they could move on. And this is in hot blazing sun. And so I initiated a fundraising effort that um, I don't really want to say how much I raised, but I was able to buy 16,000 hats, uh, 8,000 rain ponchos, several thousand pairs of sweatpants and shoes, tons of food. I, I was the first person to walk into the local grocery stores and just simply set up lines of credit so that the volunteers who were coming, Western volunteers coming to the village to help with the refugees, they could go in and they would see a boatload coming. They'd say, okay, uh, we've got 60 people coming now, and there are 12 of them are kids, and so we need juice, we need so many sandwiches, we need, you know, whatever. And they could go into these grocery stores and basically just take the stuff. And, you know, I was funneling money to the grocery stores, and other people were too. Uh, we put in like, you know, $500 or $1,000 at a time, and that would go for a few days, but we just kept it going, just turning it away. As we got money, we, we looked to where the needs were. So that actually ultimately ended up turning itself into a local NGO, non-governmental organization, which was very uncommon in Greece and on the island to try to do um, charitable kind of things. And so ultimately, the woman who's our friend who had started this effort to help the refugees ended up organizing a real organization that could then really effectively go out to the world and, and continue to 
raise money to provide services to them. And so there were special programs that were set up eventually for women who were accidentally separated from their family, which put them in a very vulnerable position. Uh, people with disabilities. There was one camp in the main town that was just for basically women, women with children, no men in the family and didn't know where they were and the disabled people, and one of the things that I helped do is to buy the kitchen equipment so they could actually prepare food for the people. So there's a lot of generosity, but there was also a lot of divisiveness that developed around fear of just losing all the tourism. And it's true that at one point there were 30-some charter flights coming in from the Netherlands and the U.K. and a couple other places per week in the high season to the island, and that dropped down to one charter flight per week. So it was a big, big kick economically to them. There's another issue that underlies your novel, Fire on the Island, and you've referred to it as the exchange when Greeks and Turks who had been living peacefully within each country were forced to leave the land and the homes that they had been living on for generations and go back to their countries of origin. Could you tell us a bit about that history and some of the repercussions of of that exchange? I can. I'm not the best historian for it. I know, I know about it happening, and I have read about it. Um, I believe the year is 1923. Uh, it just followed the end of World War I. I uh, believe that really was the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. And there were a couple of million Greeks in Turkey and a couple of million Turks living in Greece. And everybody was fairly content at the neighborhood level or at the you know village level and stuff. But uh, the politicians at the time decided that there would be this huge population exchange. And it's at the same time of the burning of Smyrna, if you know anything about that story. But in just a few sentences... The Turkish army basically pushed Greeks from central Turkey all the way to the west coast of Turkey to a town called Smyrna, S-M-Y-R-N-A, and the Greeks ended up being pushed toward the shoreline, and the Turks sort of created a crescent uh, behind them and set the town on fire, and the fire was moving towards them, and it was a real tragedy for history and for the people. But I can't tell you much more than that, except it's an issue that with the refugee crisis today in Greece, people often say, but we we were refugees, our families were refugees. You know, my grandfather came from Turkey during that time, and things like that, and people have these stories still in their family. So that was one of the things that people were complaining or against helping refugees in any way. People would say, but your great-grandfather came from Turkey, and he was a refugee. So it's something that's still alive in their consciousness, and I think, actually, in the book, it does play a role in terms of motivation coming down, you know, through the decades since and through the centuries since then, of uh, what it's really meant and created some attitudes around things in, in the village. Um, you've been traveling the world all of your life. What, what drives you to travel? What is it about the rest of the world that draws you? Well, I can explain that in two different ways. First, I'll tell the story about when I was in sixth grade, and my elementary school was having a $1 all-you-can-eat spaghetti fundraiser, and I sat down at this long table across from some guy who seemed pretty old to me. My guess is that he was probably 30 or 35 years old. But he said that he could speak five languages and had been to 40 countries, and kind of on the spot, I thought, that's the kind of life I want. 
So I, I did. I pursued it. I also began to develop a real strong social consciousness in high school, and that made me really want to help poor people really anywhere in the world. And I decided I would travel to try to do that. And I worked on the war and poverty in America for a while. That was the first half of my official career. And then I flipped to international work and worked all over the world, working on everything from housing finance schemes for low-income people to microfinance programs to uh, I was an advisor to the Minister of Finance in Poland at the time when Solidarity came to power to help set up, uh, for the first time in Polish history, a mortgage finance program so people could actually borrow money to buy a house or buy an apartment. They never had that chance before. I just got interested in people and helping, and then I'm just curious about the world, so I was able to put both those things together into a career that was very exciting, and now I just draw on those experiences for what I write about. That's why I don't write a series, like some people write mystery series of the same characters or thriller series of the same characters, but all my books are standalone because I can take and go to different places that I know really well because I've lived in several places for two or three years and also deal with issues of, you know, political or social issues that are really affecting those communities differently than somewhere else. I mean, the Greek refugee crisis did not happen in Thailand, and the human trafficking thing that I wrote happens in Africa, but not in uh, wherever. Uh, that's what, you know, just a combination of being curious about the world and wanting to help people, and, and that's what I did. So because of the pandemic, just about everybody is stuck where they are and unable to travel. I was hoping that you could take us on a bit of a travelogue and tell us some of perhaps some of your most interesting and, and perhaps wild travel experiences and even perhaps um, some that, that have inspired some of your writing. Um, one story that comes to mind is when I was living in Greece in the early 1970s, a good friend of mine was in the Peace Corps in Senegal and I decided to try to go visit him. And I looked at a map, this before the internet and all these guidebooks and all this fast information stuff, and I decided to uh, try to get there by boat because I thought it would be cheaper than going by airplane. And I managed to fly to Cabo Verde, Cape Verde, which is a, a group of islands just off the west coast of Africa. And I was then going to take a boat from there. I assumed there would be boats because it was islands and it was the closest islands to Africa. But I found out that there was basically a state of civil war between Senegal and a Portuguese colony on its southern border, and that there were no boats going between them, that the flight I took down to, to the islands from Lisbon uh, would not be returning for another two weeks. It was making a loop around the Horn of Africa and coming back, and that flight in two weeks was already booked solid. So I was stranded for a couple of weeks on the islands. I was going to be stranded for longer until a uh, cargo ship with an American captain came in, pretended it had a bad rudder, and got permission to go to Senegal. And I managed to get on the boat, but I didn't have money to pay for the amount he wanted, so he considered me a stowaway and kept me on deck for three days with no food and no water. And when I got to Senegal, I was promptly arrested. And all of that appears in my book called Cooper's Promise. It's actually... Uh, the conversation I had in the police station is pretty much verbatim in the book. But that was an interesting experience for me because in Cabo Verde, there was absolutely nothing to do except 
go for a beer at this one bar slash brothel, which was called Vietnam by the locals for some strange reason. And I would just go in there and sit at the bar and have my beer, and I wasn't particularly interested in going behind the beaded curtain with the girls, but I was interested in talking to them. And in Cooper's Promise, that's my character, who's at this bar and finds out that one of the girls has actually been trafficked, and he vows to save her from being trafficked on. So that very much gave rise to one of my novels, and a very important novel to me. I'm trying to think of what else. All my books come from places I know pretty well. Warsaw, of course, uh, is in the Fourth Courier. Uh, I lived in Jerusalem for two and a half years, so I got pretty familiar with that area. Greece, of course, I know really well. So, And where things don't exactly jive with what the reality was, for instance, I, I don't really give a country in Cooper's Promise. It's a fictional West African country. Anybody who reads the book would recognize it as West Africa. They would not recognize it as any particular country. And that gave me the opportunity to pick and choose I took the bar out of Cabo Verde, I took a particular street out of Bangkok, I took a hammam out of eastern Turkey, and I put it all in this one little town in, uh, in West Africa, and, uh, and it worked. It's kind of fun. I love that aspect of writing, that you can uh, essentially give yourself creative license. Yeah, for sure. I mean, all my characters aren't necessarily from people I know, but most major characters are, and they help give me their voice and you know like right now the book fire on the island is just coming out the people in the village recognize themselves of course <laughs> it's kind of funny in some cases like one woman says but i didn't sleep all over the place on my way from australia to greece and i said i know you didn't but you're not really surely you're somebody else you know you're you know i just kind of used you as, as the starting point and they love it they think it's great so yeah it, it is there's a lot of creative license in writing so are there any other particularly interesting stories from your own life that you haven't yet um, used in in your writing that you could tell us? Uh, I don't know. I've got ideas for three more books, and I'm working on one right now. Uh, what comes out of my own personal life, I think of all my main characters as being somewhat, if not, in a big way, autobiographical. And the way I tried to describe it, I probably don't have this exactly right, but in um, Herman Hesse's Steppenwolf, there's a main character named Harry, and Harry goes into something called the Magic Theater. And in the Magic Theater, there are all these mirrors all over the walls, and they all reflect different, different aspects of him. And in my own mind, I always remember that scene where the mirrors shatter, and it's like shards on the floor, of different parts of his personality, and that's how I kind of view what I do in creating my main characters. I see all these shards of my personality on the floor, or my experiences, and I I pick them up and I choose which ones I want in this particular story with this particular character. So that's sort of how I, I build off of my main characters. And I think my main characters take on a little bit more action roles and than I am in my own life. I mean, I, I wasn't really an FBI agent. I wasn't a CIA agent. I wasn't stopping nuclear smuggling. Oh, that's a story I can tell you about. Um, the Fourth Courier, which is not the current book, but the one that was published last year. It's about a nuclear smuggling operation. And I had the opportunity to be 
in Poland right at the time of the big change from communism to capitalism. I was there when Solidarity basically came into power, and I worked there for two years. In the course of being there, I had some short-term assignments out into other parts of what was formerly Eastern Europe or the Soviet Union, and one of those assignments was in Latvia. And Latvia is a country that uh, there's a 50% Russian population there because the Russians wanted to move Russians into Latvia. Well, it was suddenly free, and... I was there on a small consulting assignment, and that caused me to meet with a decommissioned Russian general who was very unhappy about the state of affairs and and the fact that he had basically lost his job because of the changes. But we had an official meeting with some other delegates from different government agencies of Latvia and some U.S. stuff going on. And then at the end of the meeting, he said, let's go somewhere where we can talk and not be overheard. And, of course, everywhere you were in the former Soviet Union or Eastern Europe, there were um, bugging devices going on. And so he took me out into this forest. We walk and we walk and we walk. And I'm thinking, what the hell is he taking me out here for? And at one point he just stopped and said, I can get you anything you want. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, atomic. And I realized that we'd been talking about the nuclear arsenal that Russia had in Latvia, and he had at one point been partly in charge of its uh, protection. And um, he was offering me nuclear material. It was pretty shocking, but that became the seed in my mind that when I finally decided to write a story about Poland and I needed some sort of suspenseful plot, that suspenseful plot is this nuclear smuggling operation. But in the same vein, I can tell you another sort of odd story. Uh, I was asked by the Peace Corps to design a program for Peace Corps volunteers in the same period of time, like, 1989 probably was, or 1990, and um, I was in Vladivostok in far eastern Russia, and I was in my hotel room typing up my report and my recommendations, and when I went to Moscow two weeks later or three weeks later to actually officially present my report and my recommendations, the Russians already had it. They had actually picked it up off my keyboard as I was typing it from a nearby building. So those things happen. <laughs> so how many languages do you speak? I speak English, of course. I speak French. I used to be very conversant in Greek. My Greek is a little rusty now, but I can still get by and do the pleasantries and do a little bit more than that. Um, I have studied because I've lived in different places. I've studied Thai, Polish, Arabic, um, and Spanish because I grew up in Southern California, and so... Spanish was useful. I don't speak it that well, but I can get by in it as well. So in Latvia, how did you communicate? Did you speak any Russian? No. Okay. Uh, all that stuff would be done with translators. because, And when I did my work in Poland for anything official, I always used a translator because it's very important when you're dealing with these things not to have any miscommunication whatsoever. And often people spoke English but they would speak English about as badly as I spoke their language. So we we would have our little English conversations or our Polish conversations, but all the official work was really English. What about uh, stories of of human trafficking, since it sounds like you have some experience in that realm? Well, like I said, I'm sort of drawn to writing stories about social issues that are really important today. And... I 
had been convinced by a friend of mine who's an Africanist that I should do something about blood diamonds. For your listeners, those are also called conflict diamonds, and they are the diamonds that fuel the wars that go on in West Africa a lot. And I was on my way to Antwerp to go to the diamond district and begin to really do research on diamonds and kind of go backwards to the blood diamonds from that perspective. When I listened to a Neil Conan, this is in 2003, a Neil Conan story on Talk of the Nation with Jody Cobb, who was a National Geographic photographer. And she had just done the photography for the cover story that month, which I think was September 2003, on modern-day slavery. And the story was so amazing to me that there could be like 26 million people enslaved in the world, and 70% of them were young women mostly in, in sex trafficking. And I, I, I never heard about this before. When I had lived in Paris some years earlier, there's always jokes about, you know, white slavery and, you know, women getting kind of whisked off the street, taken to Saudi Arabia or something like that. But that seemed pretty far-fetched. But here suddenly are these numbers that were staggering to me. It's the first time I've ever actually pulled off the road to listen to a story finish. I, I just couldn't believe it. So I decided I was going to Antwerp, which is the second largest port in Europe, and that I would try to find out what was going on in terms of human trafficking, too, because ports are an obvious place for people to be trafficked through. And when I got to Antwerp, I made contact with a couple of safe houses for women who had been trafficked and had been saved. Uh, I met with the FBI agent um, in Brussels to find out sort of what the story was. And I took it from there. I began to really research it. I, in fact, I even went to Israel to um, do some research because Israel had a real problem with it. And, and I had seen a, a news broadcast that totally floored me about it in Israel. So I, I just decided to contact the journalist. I contacted the woman who really runs the anti-trafficking operation in Israel. And so, you know, the story kind of evolved. And I learned that there was a very different approach to trafficking women from Eastern Europe versus Africa. And I just decided to set my story in Africa, ultimately. And that's how the story came about. So how does trafficking work in Africa? And how is it distinct from Eastern Europe? And who are who primarily gets trafficked and why? For what what purposes? It's, pri- it's primarily sex trade. Okay. And uh, it's young girls or young women who are promised jobs that don't exist or promised that they'll be waitresses or they'll be housekeepers in a hotel or something like that. And, and they get to where they're, where they're taken and their identification is taken from them and they're threatened and they're really imprisoned. In one situation that I know about, they were kept in concrete cells that you couldn't even stand up in and had combination locks on the doors that they couldn't get out of. And it was a pretty terrible situation. But the main difference between Eastern Europe and Africa was that in Eastern Europe or Russia, there was always kind of a KGB thuggish aspect to what was going on or is going on. And if the girl tried to escape or didn't cooperate once she found out that she was now a prostitute, they would go after the family, they'd come back to the family, and there'd be repercussions. They'd be killed or maimed. And there's a constant threat of that. The difference um, with Africa is that, and I, I don't really remember the vocabulary exactly right, but what we would call witch doctors exist. But um, these people 
basically the, the young girls believe they have a magic spell over them that they take hair or, or fingernails or cuttings or whatever and they can do all these terrible voodoo wishes basically on them and on their families and so it's a different kind of threat but they feel it's just as real and they they don't flee you know they're, they're trapped another issue in fire on the island is homophobia and there are many places in the world where it's very dangerous to be gay what kind of challenges have you experienced as a gay man traveling in different parts of the world or have you you know, you tend to basically keep it very quiet. I mean, you're not really out telling everybody around you that you're gay. I mean, my partner and I managed to actually get jobs in the same countries on three different occasions. We were both in Thailand, we were both in Jerusalem, we were both in Poland. And he was a career Peace Corps, and I was basically a, a contractor with a, an expertise in finance and economic development for low-income projects that I could get a job anywhere. I was working for UN, World Bank, AID, all that stuff. But we personally could not be open about our relationship, particularly in a place like Jerusalem or Palestine, particularly because it's just not a healthy situation to be openly gay there. So we had to hide it. And to the extent that we knew other people were gay, you know, it just it's just not something that was a, a big part of our outdoor life. You know, we didn't socialize a lot as gay people. I'm trying to think if we socialized at all as gay people, to be honest. It was, you know, pretty frightening in some places, the repercussions. I mean, in the Syrian conflict right now, ISIS, uh, Islamic State, takes young gay guys to the top of a 12-story building and throws them off. That's actually part of a new book that I'm working on right now. Uh, the situation in Greece is that it's always been a hugely shameful thing, just something that Greek men can't, you know, haven't for a long time been able to get over and be out at all. They're more out now than than before, but it's it's still a very, very, very shameful thing. And, and on the island in a little village where they have to really hide who they are, they can't be open at all. In some places in the world, some of these communities and venues are forced underground. In your travels, have you ever sought any of them out, and and how how would you find them, considering how how deeply hidden they are? Well, I I know that in Warsaw there was one bar that had opened up that wasn't exactly known as a gay bar, but if you went, you could sort of tell who was gay and who wasn't. That it was a mixed kind of crowd, but kind of a hip crowd, and people were feeling kind of a little bit more open about things when solidarity had come to power. Now, of course, it's just the reverse in Poland. They're passing laws that are criminalizing homosexuality again and creating some real problems. Um, in Greece, when I, I lived on, actually, I lived on Santorini for a couple of years. That's an interesting story in itself. It was my first job out of college, and I was doing rural urban migration study. I was working for a Greek sociological organization or institute, and I convinced them that to understand why there was so much rural population coming to Athens, I ought to go to the rural areas and see what could be done to increase job opportunities. And the choice was either the northern mountains or the Aegean Islands, because each had lost about 50% of their population in the last 20 years at that time. And I had some contacts in the uh, 
Athens area in a community that I've been working with of migrants from the island of Santorini, and they said, go to Santorini, you know, we have a place you can even stay and, you know, go down there. And so I went down there for a couple of years, actually, and did a lot of sociological writing, really my first job, even before I had a master's degree. And so at that point, I was about a three-hour boat ride from Mykonos, which had already developed a reputation as an international gay mecca. And so I would go up there every two or three months and have a weekend fling and have some entertainment and go back to Santorini. And then in Athens, it was possible to sort out a couple of places where, you know, gay people went, but it wasn't like there were directories and stuff. I don't really remember exactly how I sorted things out, except I would hear music and I'd go in and be Gloria Gaynor and be gay bar. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I recently read a book by Jeff Charlotte where he, I think in the second part of his book, he writes about how he traveled to Russia to explore the underground LGBTQ scene, as well as some of the people involved in the brutal opposition against them. So I'm curious about uh, people's experience, people who do travel the world and their experience in that realm. I think that, I mean, I've been to a lot of places. I've been to 112 countries. And as a younger guy, I would kind of try to seek out, you know, what was going on. But I was always a little nervous about it. But I think it was always possible to ultimately psych out that, you know, yeah, this place, this might look like kind of a mixed crowd, but it's mostly guys and, you know, throughout that, yeah, this is probably what passes for where gay guys might meet. And I know in some places, I'm trying to remember now, there, I hear about things called private clubs and you would go and ring a doorbell. And But I was never particularly interested in that kind of scene. I didn't really seek it out that much. But I will mention one humorous bar I happen to have in my family, a deaf person. I also had a, a teacher with two deaf parents. I learned the sign language and I've always had sort of a an odd sort of curious about deaf people because they've, they've been part of my life in a way. And I found this one gay bar in Athens that was just for deaf people, and I thought that was terrific. So, <laughs> but um, otherwise, I, you know, just sorted things out as I went along. Are there any other parts of the world that you've been to that we haven't talked about yet where you, you have a, a good story? Well, I've done a fair amount of traveling and work around Africa. Uh, I've set a book in, in a fictional African country. I'm, I'm working on Syria right now, a book that takes place there. I think, actually, this is kind of an interesting story. It's, it's not too dramatic, but when I finished Fire on the Island, I realized that I had refugees in the story, but it wasn't really my refugee novel. It's not about the refugees. There's sort of a background to it, and I decided I wanted to find out Really, And I knew what happened to the refugees once they arrived in Greece. I knew the routes they took, and I knew what happened exactly when they got off the raft and how long it took them to finally get to Athens, etc. I knew all that, but I did not know how they got on the raft, how they got to the coast of Turkey. And I decided to go to Istanbul to begin to do that research. And it's the first book I'm writing in a place where I haven't actually lived, and I've gone a couple of three times to do research. I, I've been to Istanbul many times, but not living there, and so I, this is a little bit different for me. And so I went to Istanbul about a year and a half ago to research this, and I was out trying to find out who was doing the smuggling. You know, from the European side of things, they're looked at as human traffickers. They're actually defined by the laws out there, putting refugees on a raft and getting them across to Greece. They're considered traffickers on the Greek side, but on the Turkish side, they're considered like the Underground Railroad. They're helping people. They're helping people who are really trying to get to safety. 
And that's something I discovered that I hadn't expected. I didn't realize that things had actually been done pretty openly. There's one neighborhood in uh, Istanbul where a lot of refugees settle until they can move on. And there are two cafes that basically is where the refugees and the smugglers would hook up. And it was all done pretty openly. I, I know there were bribes being paid to policemen and stuff, so it wasn't that it was necessarily legal, but it was able to be done. And, you know, they got their people on those rafts and, and to Greece. And unfortunately, some of them were good smugglers and some of them were bad smugglers. And, you know, the life jackets filled the newspaper and that sort of stuff. It's not, uh, not a very nice thing, but the actual operation wasn't really as underground. It was people met up on sidewalks and, and did their business. So, you know, made their arrangements and that was it. That really surprised me. Now, in, in that journey to Greece, the Greek Coast Guard, they can turn refugees back if they catch them before they land on Greek soil. Is that correct? Not exactly. The Coast Guard only picked up people who were actually capsized, actually thrown into the water, or the boat looked like it was going to capsize imminently, because there would be, you know, like 70 people crammed on a raft built for 30. So, of course, it was taking on water almost from the moment it left the Turkish shore. And there were also a lot of times these rafts were sent off with only enough petrol in the engine to get them halfway to Greece, which is only a couple of miles. So the Coast Guard would pick them up and rescue them. The others had to basically land and then walk to the main town on the island. There was a point in time where a different quasi-naval, quasi-Coast Guard force, which is an international European force, they could intercede for a while and turn people back. But generally, the rafts, once they launched and once they got into Turkish waters, they were not sent back. The Coast Guard was generally, at least on, on Lesbos, they were lifesavers. You know, they were rescuers. They weren't trying to force people back to Turkey. In Fire on the Island, there's a case where one of the pilots of one of the rafts slashes the raft once they reach a certain point in the journey in order to make sure that the Coast Guard has to rescue the occupants. And in this particular case, they cut it a little too early, and, and most of the people on the raft end up drowning. But um, that's that's the part that led me to think that... Right. Yeah, let, me, that... let me elaborate on that just a little bit. You're right. Thank you for reminding me about that particular scene. The rule, which is I think is an EU rule, is that if a refugee who may not be necessarily qualified to be an asylum because they're at risk of their life if they stay home or, or whatever. Um, technically, if they have a viable, floatable vehicle or boat to return them to where they came from, they could have been pushed offshore and told to go back. And so just to make sure that that didn't happen to them, the refugees knew to slice the side of the boat and ruin it so that they could not be turned around and pushed back into the water. But I actually don't know of an instance where the Coast Guard did push people back into the water. It really was a situation where they were rescuing people, and it was just simply the notion that that, that could have been done, that that's why that actually happened in my book and happened in real life. You'd go along 
the beach, you'd find three or four rafts all sliced. You know, people would come over early morning, late night, that kind of thing. In this particular story in Fire on the Island, there's a lot of issues going on. And one thing that's going on is is a kind of um, art trafficking and forgery and, and art trafficking. I'm, I'm curious, in your travels and, and your time in some of these communities, have you encountered this kind of intrigue and complicated relationships and issues going on in the communities you've been part of? Yes, I have, but I will say it was not art trafficking or art forgery, and um, that's simply something I made up. And uh, Father Alexis is the name of all the bad priests in all my books because it was a Father Alexis in my childhood who just was somebody I didn't like, and that's its own story. But the kind of conflicts that are going on in the story otherwise are, are very real. I mean, when the first meeting in the church in, in real life, it, it took place in the town hall, where a woman stands up within a minute after the meeting started and, and starts screaming, don't let them, don't let them land, shoot them before they, before they can ever land. I mean, she really stood up and, and screamed that. That is absolutely true. And it just shows you how, and she was a matriarch. She was an older woman. It's like, wow, how can people really be thinking this? And this is fairly early on in the crisis when we're talking about only maybe a couple of hundred or three or four hundred a day landing. It was, it was beginning to, to build up in numbers. And eventually there'd be thousands of people, two or three thousand people on a day. I think one time they said 10,000. I couldn't even believe it. But, yeah, there are conflicts, and villages have conflicts. Um, the reason I really wrote the book was to talk about how people were coping, as I said a little bit earlier, with these kind of dual crises and the fact that the economy had just completely sunk and, and how they were getting along. That's, that's really the point of the book, is to tell a story about the Greeks. That's interesting. And in all the books, what I do is I take something that I try to find a suspenseful story that lets me talk about the bigger picture going on around that story. So in this case, okay, we've got a suspenseful story with an arson, and and the notion is that there have been several fires, each one closer to this village, and, well, maybe the village is really the target, and this arsonist is just basically trying to play with us. And that's somebody's notion, and and it might be true. So the fact that the FBI comes down because it will destroy the Coast Guard station along with the village, and the Coast Guard station is playing an important role in rescuing refugees, and the FBI, the U.S. government, doesn't want that Coast Guard station destroyed. So that's what I do with other stories. I, I find a suspenseful thing, a nuclear smuggling plot, which allows me to really get into the lives of ordinary Polish families or uh, Vision of Angels, which is a planned suicide attack on Easter Sunday in Jerusalem that involves four different families that all have different takes on the conflict there, but their lives are all entwined by this one incident, and they don't even know each other. And so it's a really war hero, a Palestinian farmer, an American journalist, and an Arab Christian grocer. But anyway, that's sort of what I do. I take a suspenseful plot, and I tell the human story around it. And in fact, uh, the main American character in The Vision of Angels, he's a photojournalist, and he's trying to put a human face to this interminable conflict that has spawned so many other conflicts, and that's sort of his story. That's why he's there, and so it makes it interesting to work with these suspenseful sort of plots. Oh, I know what I also wanted to say: the fact that there's an FBI agent on this island in Greece 
who's coming down from Athens where he's posted is very curious to a lot of people. I've actually had people dismiss the book entirely like, well, that's impossible. There, there are no FBI agents like that. Well, in fact, there are 63 FBI agents around the world right now attached to embassies. They work with their counterparts to solve crimes. Some of that spills over into intelligence, but they're not really there for intelligence work. They're there for criminal activity. And they're posted in countries which have problems with human trafficking, drug trafficking, arms trafficking. And they are known as legal attaches or legats, L-E-G-A-T-S. And people can go on the FBI webpage and look them up and find out where the countries are. I was going to ask you about that. And I'm curious, why does the United States, why are they interested and invested in that kind of support around the world? Well, I'd say that current domestic politics aside, America has played a pretty good guy role on certain issues. Uh, its foreign assistance program, though small, has always been divorced from politics and has always met real needs in the field. I think that the fact that a lot of these things like human trafficking or drug trafficking also can influence or affect America pretty directly. So to try to stop drug trafficking at its source, for instance, or human trafficking at its source, or uh, a lot of the stuff is run by really mafias. There's another word for it. They're gangs or mafias or rackets. And it's just basically to try to keep the world from being as bad as, bad as it could be and, and hopefully keep the problems from coming ashore to America. Well, I really appreciate the way you paint these uh, complex, humane stories. And I enjoyed the book. And I really enjoyed going through your website and looking at the, you know, the type of stories that you tell. And thank was, you. And thank you so much for all your time and the stories you shared with us. I appreciate the opportunity. I really do. Thank you very much. I hope they're all good stories. <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed them, and, I, and I'm sure my listeners will enjoy them, especially as they're stuck at home. <laughs> <laughs> good. Yeah, well, thank you very much. And thank you again, and be well. Yeah, you too. Be safe. Be well. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was Timothy J. Smith. Timothy is a world traveler and author of numerous novels, screenplays, and stage plays. He's won numerous awards for his writing, and his latest book that we've been somewhat talking about is Fire on the Island. Hi, Tonio. I just want to say thanks again. Oh. <laughs> I appreciate all the good questions. Well, I, I really enjoyed talking with you, and yeah, it's been a pleasure for me as well. Yeah, well, good. I mean, sometimes I, I get these interviews, and people haven't read the book, and you know, it's like, okay, what do I explain and how do I say it? But you, you had read it and you had some really good questions. I very much appreciate that. Well, I just can't imagine doing an interview like this without reading the book. I mean, I read slowly and thoroughly and I, I try to do my research. And, and I can also relate to this. When I was a child, we almost went to Greece. I mean, we were planning to go to Greece back in the 60s. And... Um, my father and stepmother got to s southern Spain and started running out of money, so we ended up spending a year in southern Spain, and it was just a completely life-changing experience for me. Sure. How old were you? I was eight, going on nine, and it just opened up 
my perspective of the world and life in general. Yeah, it would. Um, let me ask you, you asked me a lot about the gay aspect of my book. Are, are you gay? I'm not. I'm, <laughs> I'm not. But uh, growing up in New York City, um, my parents have gay friends, and our radio station is connected with Goddard College, and it's a very, very progressive college, and a lot of LGBTQ people come here because it, it's very safe here. And I had a previous co-host who is a professor at Goddard, and her own uh, favorite tagline for the college was, come as you are and leave as a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh... I just wanted to say to you about the whole gay thing about the village and, and in my story that nobody ever had their cheeks cut out or anything like that, but I, I made that up. But the whole thing about this rocky point and this, you know sex and being so ashamed of it and literally running away from it. I've watched this so many times. It's just one of those things that it's just there. And I've been very curious. I haven't heard anybody from the village talk about that aspect of the book yet, but I'd be very curious when I get down there to talk to people about it and see if they actually really know that this goes on, because it's a little bit out of the village, but it's there. But And I, did, I didn't want to make more of it than I, than I did, but I felt that it was really a, a key thing about, you know, something I wanted to finally write about. Um, in a kind of an upfront way. So, mm -hmm. I've actually seen it. I worked at a an art house theater in the gay section of San Diego, and the theater was nestled between two gay bars. And one night at the theater, um, a gay man came in. He had been badly beaten by somebody right out on the street. Yeah, and he was he was in bad shape. So, yeah. I know it happens, and even in more present-day circumstances. Yeah, I, I mentioned very briefly, but the new book I'm, I'm working on is um, about a young gay Syrian refugee in Istanbul just basically trying to survive. But his story is that he and his cousin, who was also gay and were sort of intimate in kind of boyish kind of ways, uh, was set up and exposed and... He watched his cousin be thrown off this rooftop and just turned and walked Istanbul, which was like 800 miles away. And he's just trying to survive. And, you know, his conflict of being gay, you know, but being Arab and, or being Syrian, and it's such a hard thing for him. And I met enough gay Arabs in different ways to know what a shameful thing this is. And I also thought it's useful to, to try to open that up a little bit. So that's what the new book's about, in a sense. But the real story of the new book is that this guy is approached in the same 24 hours by both the CIA and ISIS to be a spy for them. And his homosexuality is, in one case, used against him as a real threat. He doesn't do it. So, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting story. Yes, and it reminds me of an old friend of mine who was like a brother to me who was a gay man, and his father was gay as well. And they were, um, let's say, they they were a very, very powerful, prominent family in a Middle Eastern country. And they had some sticky issues worldwide because of all of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. The Arab community is, is one of the last to come around, and I, I'm aware of it from what I read. And so... I, 
hopefully I help on that a little bit, but it won't be much probably. Well, I guess every little bit helps and, and broadening the range of the stories that are put out there just broadens the world in general and our overall perspective and our overall humanity. So I, I think it's great what you're doing and, and the kind of stories that you tell. No, thanks. Okay, well, I'll say thanks again, but I, I just wanted to call back and have another, you know, a couple more minutes with you. So, And I'm glad you did. Good. All right, well, good luck to you. Thanks a lot. And if you ever need an idea for a couple of other writers you might want to talk to, yeah, I've been very impressed with some of the uh, young gay writers coming up. They're brilliant. Do you have a couple of names right now? Yeah. Um, the writer of, it's called Leading Men. Leading Men, and it's by Christopher Castellani, C-A-S-T-E-L-L-A-N-I. It's the um, it's a fictionalized account of the 16-year love affair between Tennessee Williams and Frank Mirlo. And it was in those 16 years that Williams wrote all of his really finest stuff. And it's just a really interesting piece of work, and I think that the research that has gone into this would be a very interesting topic. And another piece by Hassan Namir, N-A-M-I-R. I think it's called God in Pink. And while I don't think it's a, itself a great book, I think that he's a very interesting poet and writer and somebody who people are paying a lot of attention to. And he's won a couple of awards for Lando Literary. Uh, he's an Iraqi who has escaped Iraq. He has a partner, a husband, I guess. They call each other husband. And they recently had a surrogate child. And I just think that his experience is pretty interesting. And I have a feeling he'd be an interesting person to talk to. I don't know him personally. Mm -hmm. Oh, and there's one more guy. I love this book. The book is called Swimming in the Dark. And it's by a Polish guy. His name is Tomasz, T-O-M-A-S-Z, Tomasz Jedrowski, J-E-D-R-O-W. S-K-I, Yadrovsky. He's only written one book. He has a French lover, I think. He lives somewhere in the French countryside, but I, I don't know where that is. But it was a beautiful book. Well, thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Okay. That's all I can do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you've done a lot. And um, again, thank you so much. Thank you. Interesting talk by the English actor Terence Stamp. 
Well, I've always assumed, you know, using the rest of the soliloquy, it seems to me that what Shakespeare is talking about is you can either be present or you can be absent. And with the people that I have spoken to, the unobserved movement of thought is absence. So the opposite of that is presence, which is the being. And I think that one's true self, that part of oneself which knows itself to exist, which is conscious of itself. So we all have that. It's just that we don't pay attention to it because the life is so fascinating, isn't it? The outward life. I mean, if one's honest, you can go a whole day without remembering like that something is looking. Sorry, the first question was so heavy. <laughs> Don't be intimidated. <laughs> well, it was a very interesting moment in my life, you know, because I really view my career, I view my life really as like before and after Fellini, because being cast by him was the greatest compliment an actor like myself could get, that he actually wanted me in the part, you know, so that was wonderful. However, from the age of about 12, I was in love with a chick called Silvana Mangano. I'd seen a film of hers called Bitter Rice, and I fancied her like to death, you know. <laughs> and, uh, so consequently, one day in the street when I was living in Rome, I walked down the Spanish steps and I walked straight into the street opposite, I think it's Via Condotti, and I see walking toward me Piero Tosi, who was working on my costumes, was Fellini's costume designer, and at the time was considered the greatest designer in the world, you know. And he's with another guy who turned out to be his boyfriend, who was a guy called Roberto Coppa, and this woman. And when they got closer, I thought I was going to pass out because it was <laughs> Silvana Mangano, right? Now, I don't want to mislead you when I say that she was a young grandmother because she was not like any other young grandmother I had ever met. However, they got close and Pura said, Oh, Silvana, this is my friend Terence. And, and I'm just like... <laughs> and she starts saying to him in Italian, wouldn't he be wonderful in Pier Paolo's film? And then she looked at me and she realized that I probably didn't speak Italian, which I didn't. And she said, do you know Pasolini? And I said, no, I know who he is, but I don't know him. And she said, oh, well, he's making a film and you would be wonderful in it. And I remember saying, are you in it? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and she said, so then, next thing I knew, Pier Paolo and his producer, who was the nephew of Roberto Rossellini, flew to London and they stayed in Claridge's and I was asked to go and meet them in Claridge's, which I thought was strange because I'd heard about Pasolini being a real left-winger, you know. Anyway, I go to Claridge's <laughs> and he doesn't speak any English and he said through the translator 
It's a story of a petit bourgeois family in Milan. There is a father, mother, son, daughter, and a maid. A stranger arrives and seduces all of them. This is your part. <laughs> I said, I can do that. <laughs> and the only clue I got from him was that the guest, the stranger, had a divine nature. That was how Pier Paolo saw it. And I didn't have really much clue about that. I'd met Krishnamurti, but I'd been unable to understand a word. But on the first day of filming, I realized that Pasolini had his own camera. So there was the number one camera, but there was a handheld camera which he was working himself. And it became apparent to me that he was shooting me when I wasn't ready, or when he assumed I wasn't ready. So I thought, oh, this is easy, right? I just have to do absolutely nothing, right? Which is what I did. So I arrived at the performance in the present room. And as there were no lines for the stranger, I didn't have to prepare it in any way. I just had to be completely okay with spontaneously what came up. So that was one of my great performances. <laughs> Doing nothing. Thank you. Pleasure. How old are you? 58. Okay. No, it's just that... Um, I get a very kind of um, recognisable response from people when I'm in the street, you know. Sometimes there's a group of guys, some of them black, some of them white, all pretty fearsome looking. And I find that they're staring at me like they want to kill me just because I'm a skinny queen, you know what I mean? They, they have real animosity toward me. And what I generally do is, like, when they get really close, I say, kneel before Zod, you bastards. You. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they say, oh, it is, it's him, it's him, you know. And, and I know by the age, because it's probably the first movie their parents ever took them to see. And the truth was that I had been out of work since 69, and I was actually living in the ashram, trying to learn about tantric sex and wearing orange. And I got this. <laughs> but we used to go, myself and a group of English sannyasins, used to go to this hotel called the Blue Diamond for what was laughingly called full English breakfast. You can imagine <laughs> what it was like. And when I had arrived in Pune, with the idea of going to listening to this Rajneesh that I'd heard about, I guess I must have sent my agent a postcard, my long-suffering agent, you know, saying, I'm in Pune or I'm fine, you know. Anyway, after about a year I'd been there, I go there one Sunday morning to breakfast with my mates, Swami Yoga Yoga, who was like Jamie Curzon in real life, you know. And wherever we go into the hotel, the concierge, because they're great film-goers in India, I mean, probably some of the best in the world, and this guy pulls out this kind of dog-eared telegram. Remember the old telegrams with the printing on the front? Mr. Terence, we've got a cable for you, sir. 
and he gives me this beaten up cable. And as I look at it, the psychic weight of this cable becomes heavy in my hand. And it's addressed to Clarence Stamp, <laughs> the Rough Diamond Hotel, Pune, India. <laughs> so I know the fact that it's in my hand, it's going to be life-changing in some way, you know. And I open it, and it's from my long-suffering agent, Jimmy Fraser. Would you like to come back to England to talk to Dick Donner about Superman 1 and 2? You have scenes with Marlon Brando. <laughs> I was on the night plane the next night, you know, with Bhagwan's blessing, I have to say. So the truth was that I'd been out of work for nine years, and I was a bit worried when I went down to do the camera tests. I was a bit worried that Dick Donner was trying to make me look as ugly as possible. He was shooting me from below, he was lighting me. I mean, it was... And I, I was friend at the time with a guy called Baron Frederick Van Pallen, who was Nina and Frederick. And I said to him, I don't know if this is going to work, you know. They're just trying to ruin my look, because I was only about 35, you know. Although I had been out of work, I still regarded myself as a leading man, you know. And I said to Frederick, I've got worries about this, you know. And Frederick said, listen, the way moviegoers are today, if they can make it seem that you lot can fly, it's going to be a huge success. And most of the kids will identify with the supervillain rather than the guy with the pants on outside his trousers, you know. <laughs> so that gave me a kind of confidence, you know. So... The thing about my particular kind of acting, I don't have to prepare very much. I remember I used to listen to that piece of classical music, the something of Zardoff. I used to kind of listen to that before I used to go to work. But in other words, I really regard, like, I regard everybody as everything. But I think that it's like part of the job of the creative artist to kind of look at the really terrible parts of himself. And the trick is, like, without judgment. So as far as I was concerned, Zod wasn't the supervillain. He was just super. Do you know what I mean? And I think that the thing that made it the only real commercial success I've ever been in, well, of that period, was the fact that for a whole generation of kids it was their first movie. And my friend Frederick was right. They were more interested in the villain than the Superman. <laughs> when I went to work with Fellini, I said to my agent, like, why do I go to meet this casting director? And he said, well, it was written for Peter O'Toole. And Peter O'Toole was, like, flirting with Fellini for years. Oh, we must do something together, darling, you know. And so finally, Fellini gets a subject and writes it for him and sends him the script. And apparently he got a call very late one night, and O'Toole said, I don't want to do your movie, I'm a bastard, I'm sorry, goodbye. So Fellini apparently called a casting director in England and said, send me your most decadent actors. <laughs> An actor called James Fox and I went. And it was during my very short period of smoking Acapulco Gold, I think it was at the time. 
So I arrived in Rome. I'd just finished a western where my hair was dyed blonde and the roots were growing in. And I had onks and beads and I stumbled off the plane. And Fellini just fell in love with me. And he moved me out of my hotel into his home with him and his wife, which was a life-changing experience. And give you a quick idea of what Fellini's like, because it's a story not many people, well, I don't think anybody's ever heard of it. On the first day, I realised that I'm called to my mark, and I realised that, like, I'm going to be shot. So I catch his eye, and he looks at me like, like I was a puppet that had come to life, you know? <laughs> I said, yeah, you, can... Que cosa? I'm an English actor. I'm working in Rome for the first time. I'm working for the great director Fellini. It's my first day. It's my first take. I want some direction. So he didn't pause. Listen, Terence. Last night you was at a party, but really it's a hoji. <laughs> with smoking marijuana, cocaine, and drinking, and fucking everybody fucking. You fucking blonde with big fucks, big black guy fucking you all night fucking. Now this morning, somebody drives you to the airport, gives you a big tab of LSD. Now you're here. Never had to ask for direction anymore. <laughs> <laughs> However, when the film gets really near to starting, I have to move out of his house, and he moves me to a beautiful little hotel called the Inglaterra. And he gives me an interpreter, because he can't spend time with me, and I don't speak Italian. And the interpreter turned out to be an astrologer. She was Fellini's astrologer. And one day she says to me, Oh, you've been invited to a lunch with Krishnamurti. And I say, who's Krishnamurti? <laughs> well, you know, he's Krishnamurti. I say, yeah, but is he a film director? No, no, no. <laughs> he's a sage. Now, I'm 27, and I'm famous, but I'm really an East End spiv, you know, and I'm winging it, you know. <laughs> and the only sage I know goes in the turkey with onions that my melon... <laughs> and may God strike me dead. I mean, that's what I know of the word, you know. Anyway, I go to this lunch. Now, the thing about the lunch was that many, many years later, I understand how I got to be there. Now, Fellini had written a script. It was called The Voyage of Mastorna, and it was a vehicle for Mastriani, actually. But he used to kind of like... He liked to talk to me about it, but he, he didn't want to show it to me. But what I gathered that the screenplay, the canvas of the screenplay, was that time when the body is dead, but the mind doesn't realise it. So that was the canvas. So you can imagine what Fellini would do with that, right? And I guess he found it a bit difficult to raise the money, because he apparently asked this woman called Vanda Scaravelli, who knew Krishnamurti, when your friend Krishnamurti comes to Rome, could you introduce him to me? because I'd like to talk to him. So a few months later, Krishnamurti's in town. I've arranged for you to meet him. And Fellini said, I guess feeling a bit nervous, what's he like? And Vanda said, oh, he loves movies. 
I haven't heard this story till like 20 years after the event, right? So he cuts together about 15 minutes of the rushes of the film that he and I are making, which was by Edgar Allan Poe. And he shows Krishnamurti by way of like breaking the ice. You know? And apparently when the little film finished, Krishnamurti said, I'd like to meet that boy, which was why I was invited to the lunch. Now, when I get to the lunch, it's a lot of people. They're all like stringers from Time and Newsweek. But I'm at a little table opposite this guy, this little Indian guy. And we don't speak. But because I'm staring at him, whenever he catches me staring at him, he, he lowers his eyes, you know. But I remember thinking, I've never met anybody like that. He was so unusual, you know. And he's answering questions from the stringers on Newsweek. And after lunch, his secretary, who's a guy called Alan Norday, comes over to me and said, would you like to go for a walk with Krishnamurti? I said, yeah. So he and I go out for this walk around the like, suburbs of Rome. And not having had the nerve to talk, I now can't stop chattering. And occasionally we stop and he puts his hand on my arm and he says, look at that tree. Tree. I look at him. He smiles, I smile. We carry on walking. I carry on talking. Ten minutes later, he stops me. He says, look at that cloud. Cloud. It's not lit from within. It's cloud, you know. <laughs> we carry on walking. I carry on talking. However, I was never the same after that. He did something to me, which years later understood. He used his presence to pause my own thought. And something inside me started reaching out to me. And whilst it took me 15 years, maybe, to understand, when the eagle flies, it leaves no mark. What? <laughs> the observer is the observed. What? But something changed. So that's my overriding memory. So it was a life-changing thing, do you understand? That was 68. And uh, as I say, I was headed for Glasgow and I wound up in Iceland. You know. What happened was that prior to my first film, I was taken by a great friend of mine called Lionel Barr, who was directing me in a play. And he took me to meet Anthony Newley, who was one of my long-term heroes because he was a working-class kid who'd worked his way through, like, kids' drama school, and he'd been discovered by David Lean, and he was a kind of genius, really. And when Lionel took me to his house, Newley had just finished writing Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. And he was so excited to have Lionel there, because Lionel was like no coward. I mean, he wrote the music and the words, you know. So, oh, come, 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 and he, he didn't really notice me. And he played us the whole score. What kind of fool am I? I can't believe it. I'm listening to Newley perform his own creation, you know. And at the end of it, he suddenly realized that I was like there. And he was a bit embarrassed because he 
you know, he'd ignored me kind of thing. And Lionel said, oh, this is my friend Terence, you know, he's got his first movie, he's going to be starting in two weeks, you know, and he's working with Ustinov. And suddenly I had Nulis' attention. And I said to him, what to do? And he thought, and he said, if in doubt, do nothing. So, it's not from nobody, you understand? It's from Anthony Newley, he's like a genius, you know. So I start on Billy Bard, and I'm getting along fine, Ustanoff is wonderful with me, but at the end of the script is this scene where Billy, who's like an angel, is about to be hung unjustly, and the men are on the point of mutiny. And it says in the script, there is an air of peace about Billy, that quieten the men's protests. And I thought, how am I going to do that? How can I do that? So all through the location, I'm worried about this scene. And I'm still a bit of a method actor, you know, so I'm thinking about emotional memory and da-da-da, but I can't think of anything to do. So on the day, I think, well, I haven't come up with anything. I'll have to do what Newley says. I'll have to do nothing. I can't tell you how frightening this is for a performer, you know. So I step up to the mark, and when thoughts come in my head, I just let them go, and I'm waiting. And they say, okay, Stan Campana, you know, on your marks. And a little tune comes into my head. And I think, oh, God, got a big empty head, you know. And then I suddenly realise, ah, that's the song my gran used to sing to me when I was 11. And I used to go to her house to do my homework because there was no little brothers and sisters, you know. And she would be in her scullery making me a marmalade sandwich. And she would sing. Little Dolly daydreams, pride of Idaho. Wouldn't you know? Wouldn't you care? So I just went with a song. And I heard action and I felt the sun shining. And I felt a breeze coming. And out of this song came this feeling. And it was incredibly tender, but it was an amazing kind of peace. And I just remember kind of turning my look to the men, you know. Now, I knew it was right. I never spoke to anybody about it. Anybody. Because it was too personal in a way. But at the premiere, everybody burst into tears. Now, apart from the fact that the cameraman, who was Robert Krasker, who lit third man, had made me look better than I looked in real life. So I gave up the stage straight away. Thought, yeah. this, this is my destiny, you know, if I can look like that, when I really look like this, you know. And Empty Head became my mantra, because the feeling was coming from the best of me that I knew intuitively, but I couldn't locate. But it didn't alter my feeling about it, because I thought, it's there somewhere, but it's not mine to command. And then it happened on stage when I did a reading for the Airborne Symphony at the uh, Barbican, and that feeling came, and that was the first time it came other than on a film set. So it's the opposite of what you say. Do you see what I mean? It's something that was there, but that has been kind of leading me in a funny way.
and it starts with the empty head. It's empty, but it's aware. But out of the stillness of the presence comes a movement that's not the movement of thought. Do you see what I mean? It's a movement of some deep, deep sort of feeling. That was Terence Stamp. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.